Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to Coaching Inside the Box, a youth soccer podcast. I'll be honest, guys, my name is Andrew Clifton, and I could not be more excited to have you following along with us today. Um, so so what is Coaching Inside the Box? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a podcast where we talk about um, youth soccer development and youth soccer culture from three distinctly different backgrounds, um, yet all of us have something that intertwines us together, which is we all coach youth soccer now, um, uh, um, ironically enough in the same podcast. With that said, uh, let me introduce our first uh, big fella hailing from Oxford, England, but often, often claims to have been brought up by imams, monks, and a prince from Africa, Andy Barney. Where did that come from? Your story of, of, of how you always grew up um, in a, in a uh, boarding house. Yeah, but you just embellished it like 3,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how we do this? <laughs> So you weren't so you weren't raised by imams, monks, or a prince from Africa. Uh, no. Who, who were you raised by? <laughs> I was raised in a culture that was, um, you know, f people all over the world, people from various countries, uh, but uh, you know, and and one of them was actually uh, part of the royal family in Bahrain, um, but I'm not sure he was a prince. Okay. You know. <laughs> Maybe I'm conflating my stories, for sure. Yeah, so, uh, and, and imams, where did that come from? I thought you had some, there were some people from the Middle East, I thought they were Muslim, and I thought they had, like, religious oversight over their group of people, no? Uh, I don't recall that, you know, okay. but we had a lot of people from the Middle East, you know, come through the, the boarding house. So I was distinctly wrong, but kind of right. Well, for once, you were kind of right. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Let me bring in the next big fella for uh, this conversation. Um, uh, uh, he comes to us all the way from the beaches of Rio in Brazil by way of the NAI, Philippe Abreu. Hello. Hey, Philippe. How are you doing? Good. So are you excited about I'm being I'm very podcast? excited. Um, always watch podcasts about soccer in Brazil, and I actually never watched a podcast about soccer in the United States. So very excited to be part of one and start this new project. Yeah, this, this will be fun. This will be fun. Um, uh, Andy, what, 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 so you're like an old tooth fella that has a lot of experience, Easy, a lot tiger. of things. You are, um, you, you're busy. You're always writing or coaching or thinking about writing or thinking about coaching. What has you excited to come and record yourself talking to us? Well, I think all of us uh, deep down inside hope that we can make a difference in this life. And so if I can bring a message that is somewhat unique to a wider audience and children can benefit as a result, that makes, you know, whatever I'm doing exciting, you know, so it's about really the end product for the kids, you know, and, you know, does the end product improve their life, not just help them win soccer games. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and we're going to dig deep into that, I think, over the course of the season of episodes. Um, but again, guys, thanks for joining us. Um, this is kind of a pre-sode, of course, uh, uh, of sorts. Um, we're really meant to serve two purposes. One, the three of us have absolutely no idea what we're doing. And so we're <laughs> going we're gonna to cut our teeth on a pre-sode. Um, that way, if it's terrible, we can just throw it out with the junk. Um, uh, so this will help us figure this thing out um, and then hopefully introduce ourselves to you. Because I think what makes what makes this conversation unique um, is that we're all distinctly different in terms of our backgrounds um, and where we come from. And, and I think when you talk, when you talk child development or uh, culture or youth soccer culture, I think having different perspectives um, provides for a much more uh, interesting and u- unique conversation for sure. So, um, for those of you that don't know Andy, uh, Andy Barney um, is an author. He's written three books, Training Soccer Legends, Legends for Life, and Legends by Design, and we'll get into all of those, I'm sure, over time. Um, Andy is a crazy researcher. Um, he researches and reads uh, more than anybody I know, um, and it all tends to be, not all, but most tends to be around two distinctly uh, distinct uh, areas, one being um, soccer and soccer development, um, and two being child development and, and, and human development, really. And so um, he's going to bring a unique uh, perspective to that. Um, Andy served on the U.S. national stack, staff um, a long time ago in the 1980s with Anson Dorrance, and, and Andy credits uh, Anson for helping to shape his perspective um, and view on youth soccer development. Um, as well, he's coached club in the United States since the mid 1980s, um, primarily in Kansas City, which is where all of us are. Um, he also just happens to be my soccer coach. I played for Andy from six until 17, so everything that is both wrong and right about my game, I can credit to, to Andy. Mostly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Andy, you were always talking to me uh, about um, a fairly new revelation for you, I think. Um, that the environment and how important the environment is and that it really trumps everything else when it comes to the impact on youth development from a soccer perspective. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Um, the, the research that I've done has, has led me in the direction of uh, you know, following the greatest players and understanding where it was that those players came from. Brazil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All of them. I wish I could disagree, but I can't. Um, not all of them, but, you know, it's, Brazil has been, you know, the, the um, incubator for some of the world's most talented players over the years. Unfortunately, and I have to say this, it, it seems to be fading. But there's a, there's a good reason why, you know, Brazil is not the incubator that it was for talent. And hopefully over the, um, the podcast's life, we'll really go into depth about all the reasons why certain environments have produced uh, unbelievable uh, results for the the people brought up in that environment and that culture when that environment existed Um, so where do you want me to start do you want me to start with brazil or do you want me to start with iceland or or you know the suburbs of paris or i think we're going to get into all of those throughout throughout the course of this podcast but like from a top-down perspective there was a time when you wrote your first book training soccer legends where you thought the curriculum and and what you did in a session was the most important thing and while i think you would still say it is a very important thing you would i think say that that the environment is significantly more important than the curriculum itself is that accurate 
Yeah, you know, over the years, we come to understand that, you know, what we perceive at one stage in, in our lives or careers. You know, for example, you know, when you were a kid, you were good looking. Um, <laughs> but you, you change your perspective as time goes by, right? Yeah. And, and so, uh, yeah, I thought the coaching philosophy was the be all and end all of, of you know, soccer teaching life. Uh, but then I started to, uh, after writing my first book, I started to get deeper into um, leadership for life. And I wrote that book. And, and then after writing that book, I started to really understand that, you know, more than anything, it was the surroundings that my players were, were in and, you know, the way in which um, practice not was constructed, but the, the arena in which practice, you know, actually occurred. And I say arena on purpose because I've gone from believing that, you know, that soccer is mostly taught outdoors in wide open spaces to believing that the greatest soccer players, and this is what history has shown me when I've researched it, grew up in tiny spaces surrounded by walls where the ball couldn't get away and where their repetition factor was astronomical. That's a perfect transition because I wanted to bring in Philippe to the conversation. And Philippe, a moment ago, rudely interrupted you saying that Brazil is where the best players in the world come yeah, from. Yeah, garbage. Philippe, <laughs> like, I grew up in the United States. And in the United States, the only soccer I played was super, super well organized, initially on poor grass fields, but eventually on really nice turf fields. Um, and everything had a referee, most often three referees. Like, What, what, what was the environment like for you as a, as a youth? Yeah, I mean, I was never coached as a kid, to be honest. Like, I just remember playing with my friends in the parks. Um, pretty much every apartment complex in Brazil has uh, a soccer court, like a 3v3, 4v4 kind of thing, like not a official futsal court. And we would just sp spend hours uh, with each other, like just playing 1v1, 2v2s, and just playing f and king of the court. Like, you win, you stay on, and nobody wants to lose. And that culture of just playing all the time, um, I mean, it was more fun to do a crazy skill, max somebody, rainbow somebody, which, by the way, I did to you this weekend when we played together. But, <laughs> I don't remember it. Oh, uh, you should. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and if I you'd have done I'm, that to me, you wouldn't have nutmegged me after doing that rainbow. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so pretty much all we did was play. Like, nobody telling us what to do, how to do it. It was just us watching soccer and then going out there and playing and have fun. Um, when I, did I, you first play, like, organized soccer? Like, for me, I played 11v11 at U8. So <laughs> when I was, like... 14, 15, I went to a tryout uh, for Flamengo, one of the biggest clubs, and it was the first time I wore outdoor cleats. I didn't have them, I borrowed from a friend, because I was like, I'm not gonna buy a pair of cleats just for this tryout, I don't use them. I always played barefoot, uh, and you know, futsal shoes and stuff, but it was that culture, you know, never organized. We had like school teams and stuff. And Did you use futsal balls? I, <laughs> so, uh, we used everything. We literally would wrap like 10 pair of socks and go barefoot and play with like a big sock ball or we would get like um, Coca-Cola uh, cans and stuff and like smash them and play. It was like a disc or whatever where we would play with literally everything or someone would grab a tennis ball and bring it to school and like the professors would have to try to drag us back into class when we had like our lunch break or whatever because all we want to do was play soccer so and um andy you grew up in a different environment obviously in england in the 60s 
Yeah, you're, you're really dating me now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I felt like if we were, truly were going to have a podcast built around diversity, we had to have both diversity from a uh, location, but also from an age perspective. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're the, you're our token gray hair. <laughs> have you looked in the mirror lately? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so uh, for those of you guys listening, Philippe mentioned him and I playing soccer over the weekend together. So this last weekend we had, uh, I think it was 45 coaches from all across the United States and Vancouver, Canada come in um, uh, to our facilities. And we did like just some coach training and, and, and had a really good two-day meeting. Um, and at the end, we finished playing some 4v4. I rainbowed somebody, but somehow Philippe begged me and rainbowed me twice i think it was towards the end of the night when i'd gotten quite tired uh but but speaking of my gray gray hair we all went out to a bar one night and i was the only guy that got carded and i guarantee i was probably one of the younger guys in the group i'm still disappointed about it (laughs) i can tell it broke your heart so you grew up in 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 england in presumably the 60s uh was it smash and grab as kids did you quickly organize yourselves into stick it in the mixer soccer uh from age five six seven no you know, we we weren't coached at all, you know, so, you know, we did what, you know, came naturally in our environment. And, you know, my environment was, uh, once again, blue collar neighborhood and, you know, lots of kids playing soccer because it was the number one sport. Um, but, you know, I grew up uh, as a player banging the ball against the wall underneath the lounge window of my house. And if I broke one of the small window panes because, you know, the, the window had multiple small window panes in it. It was my job to clean out the pain, and my dad would come in and put the new pain in. He bought a stack of pains, you know, and he told me not to worry about breaking the pain. Just keep on working with the ball under the window because he used to be a soccer player himself. How'd your mom feel about that? As long as I stayed away from the kitchen door, which had you know stained glass in it and a sailing ship in the stained glass, stained glass, I was okay. <laughs> but if I'd have ever broken that that window, I would have been in deep trouble. So you got lucky. My mom absolutely killed me every time I broke something <laughs> and I broke a lot of stuff my grandma used to paint like porcelain and stuff and I broke a ton of her paintings and she passed away so those can never be restored my mom would get absolutely crazy with me but anyway well, I was lucky as I had a supportive dad and uh, he overrode my mom and so I could break glass and you know uh, as long as I in the end repaired it I could break the glass without being criticized you know, and in the end, I got to, you know, at age eight, I was already putting in, you know, uh, small panes of glass and cleaning the brads and the old putty out and re-puttying and re-bradding the, uh, the new window pane, you know, and that just became a, a regular habit for me, you know. So, you know, the, the um, but understand that because the patio was only 10 foot deep, I became very quick on my toes and very good at, at you know, hitting the piece of wall I wanted to hit with a soft pass but I never became any good at shooting because I couldn't back up any more than 10 feet with going out, you know. There was an apple tree right behind the patio, and so I'd have backed into the apple tree and into the branches of the tree. So I was confined to this 10-foot piece of ground. And then at the end of the garden was a recreation ground. You know, in Dean Road, Headington, you know, part of the road is, is skirted on the backside of the houses by a fairly large recreation ground. And that's where my... my my buds you know all the lads gathered and we used to play one-on-one two-on-two and you know it'd be constant dribbling and shooting not much passing because we didn't have many more than maybe five or six at a time you know so you know it was more of a a, a dribbling shooting environment but not creative dribbling no moves 
It was just, you know, try and, you know, run past somebody and get a shot off, you know. And, uh, but I never became a great finisher and I didn't become a deceptive dribbler because it wasn't part of our culture. It wasn't part of the environment and it wasn't part of the culture that I was surrounded by, you know. And it's amazing how much your environment and the culture influences your eventual ability to do these skills. So we've got to have an environment, you know, if we're going to improve USA soccer and become a world power, we've got to have an environment that encourages all of the pieces to the maximum degree within that environment, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, off air just a moment ago to steal your thunder, you, you mentioned like we as a group of three aren't just going to whinge and moan and say these are all the problems that we've got in our soccer culture in the United States. We've got some solutions that for us have been really quite helpful. And so we want to share those and hopefully maybe over time crowdsource and, and, and have a, a really good dialogue with, with those that, that follow along and listen to this podcast. Andy, I think that when... When, when you talk about the environment that you grew up playing in, um, I, I find it to be really interesting that both of you grew up in an environment where you weren't really coached at first. You, you truly just played. Um, and for me, you know, growing up in the, the 80s and early 90s playing, um, everything was coached. There was no just playing um, that, that didn't exist. It really doesn't exist now either. Um, and talking about problems I think that's one specific problem that 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 exists within our culture that that is rather limiting uh, to players in the United States um, uh, to be completely honest well yeah. if, if you look at basketball the kids play in the inner cities the whole day and that's why they're so good they're also not coached until they get to I don't know middle school or whatever sure so it's, I think that the United States has that it just doesn't have that with soccer from a soccer perspective yeah yeah, yeah. But I, I, I mean, to, at the opportunity of getting on a soapbox, right, there's two things that really frustrate me when I hear coaches or people say about United States soccer. And, 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 and one of them is, is we are not going to catch up with the rest of the world. We're not going to win a World Cup until our best athletes are playing the sport. And that's complete hogwash. We are not missing out on World Cups because we can't run fast or jump high. We're missing out on World Cups because we just can't play. Um, and the second one that really that really drives me up the, up the wall is because I, th I think it's, I think it's coming from the right place, but it's one of those whinge and moans where they're not actually talking about solutions. And it's when people say until kids in the United States start playing street soccer, like they do in Brazil, like they do in England, like they do in, in, in the, the concrete jungles of Marseille, France, until they start doing that, we're not going to be able to play. And, and I think it's right. I think, I think the, and I think you, this conversation, an ongoing podcast conversation will lead us to that but when you guys talk about your environments growing up in the game and us not having it in the United States I think it's spot on but the solution isn't as simple as getting my own six and nine year old to go out and play street soccer I'm not going to go drop my kids off in downtown Kansas City and say I'll pick you up at 8 30 um, when it gets dark go find a game to get into we've got to create environments as coaches as youth coaches that encourage that creative play um, that 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 gives our kids access to what they're missing because American culture is different than Brazilian culture, for example. Right, right. And I, I think, you know, we're all agreed that during this podcast series, we're going to provide uh, solutions from three different perspectives. And this is the three legs of the stool, if you like. And, the, you know, the whether or not one or the other is more important, when you combine these three different perspectives, the result is immensely powerful. 
And the three different perspectives are a unique way of looking at coaching philosophy, which I wrote about in my first book, Training Soccer Legends, you know, and how we have to change our coaching philosophy so that we're not so much focused on winning, we're focused on developing each and every player to be an absolute ball wizard, you know, to be a fantastic, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, Leo Messi type player that can break down defenses on their own and score great goals. But let me interject with that before you go to your second one, second leg of the stool, is is it, we, ha- we have to have a philosophy that's not built about winning, but instead built about creating and creativity, right? Philippe, as kids, I'm sure when you were playing in the streets um, with your buddies, you guys kept score, right? But you weren't put in positions that limited your development. You put yourself in positions, right, from a playing perspective that was fun. It was built around fun and enjoyment, correct? Yeah, like... I don't remember any score of any game that I played with my buddies in the futsal courts or whatever. Like, never did. Like, we kept score because we were competitive, but that's not what matters. But I do remember, like, some crazy skills that I did, some crazy goals that I scored up until now. And that was, like, the conversation we would have afterwards. Like, we would make fun of each other. Oh, I magged you. Or, oh, I did an elastico, you fell on your butt, you know? And that was the conversation. That was when the fun came in. And nobody was worried about, oh, I'm going gonna to lose the ball and they're going to score. Like, that didn't happen. Forgive me, that's a bit of an epiphany because I'd always thought, I'd, I'd always looked at through, 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 looked at not keeping score, not focusing on winning as being an, a part of every environment. And I think it is probably various degrees, but for the point that I'm trying to make here is in the United States at age six and seven, eight and nine, our coaches coached to win even when they said they weren't. Um, and and in Brazil and in England, there were no coaches. So in other words, the adults couldn't screw it up. That's the point that I wanted to interject with. Yeah, it's, it's a very valid point. So, you know, uh, but going back to the three legs of the stool, the first one uh, is the coaching philosophy. And, you know, my book is about how a unique coaching philosophy can provide every individual with optimum development of, you know, that brave, creative uh, ability to beat a player in the one-on-one, one-on-two, you know, and score a great goal. You know, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's worth understanding that that's a whole leg of the stool, but the stool doesn't stand unless the other two legs are there. And the second leg that I wrote about was, um, you know, as a result of, um, you know, an epiphany um, with um, a, a book called Beyond the Summit, uh, the, it's a fantastic book about extreme mountaineering. And, you know, in this extreme mountaineering book, they point out that you have to pick the summit as the ultimate goal. And then you have to create your approach to the summit based on, you know, is this going to work from the summit backwards? Is there a route to the top? Because if you don't pick the summit as the ultimate goal, you're going to get 10,000 feet up the mountain and you're unable to climb the last 100 feet. So you don't sum it, you don't reach your ultimate goal. So I, I started thinking about what is my ultimate goal and I changed my approach to teach brave creative leadership in life as a constant theme behind everything that I was doing. You know, so now we have the coaching philosophy which is unique and we have a whole <clears throat> different approach to soccer which is about brave creative leadership. And then the third leg of the stool which I've come to realize in the history of the world in just about every way is the most important part of the developmental process is the combination of the culture and the environment. So you can have a great coaching philosophy, 
But if you're on a massive field with all sorts of space, you can't implement the coaching philosophy because the culture and environment and the philosophy are not hand in glove. And the two things have got to go together. So what we have to do is we have to create all three of these things, you know, a great coaching philosophy, which we created, you know, a, a wonderful focus on brave creative leadership, which we've created. And the third book that I'm working on now, which is all about creating the right culture and environment. And of course, in Kansas City, we've done that physically. We've spent millions of dollars on facilities that in many ways reproduce street soccer, but add to the environment that street soccer provided. Organized in a way that it can be digested by the unique American culture that, you know, mom isn't going to roll kid, the kids out in downtown Kansas City to play. Sure, the kids yeah. are safe. You know, yeah. they bring them to a, an incredibly highly supervised facility, but the facility is better than the street cultures that existed around the world because those existed accidentally where we have actually constructed this this facility so that on purpose we're looking to get the results that we believe will optimize the bravery, the creativity, the technical uh, skill of these individuals, the mentality of these individuals. You know, so everything's tied together. You know, all three legs of the stool are in place. And that's what we're going to flesh out over the course of these podcasts is we're going to keep revealing more and more about why everybody should be looking at this differently to the way that they're looking at it. Even in Brazil these days, they're failing to recognize that their history was built around what we are going to bring out in this podcast series. Philippe, what's Brazil doing wrong? Well, I think Brazil is trying to get too European. Um, we struggled uh, with tactics, not that we struggle with tactics, but like that wasn't our focus. And then we lost the World Cup in 2006, uh, which we had an unbelievable team. But we lost to a friend that had Zidane. And the players, in, Brazilian players in that World Cup, they were thinking they were, the World Cup was already won by them. And they, again, didn't focus as much as they should. And they lost 1-0 against France. Really good team. Thierry Henry, Zidane, Ribéry. So there was a change after that World Cup? After the World Cup, we were like, okay, let's bring Dunga, which was like a general, you know, and military oh, Negative. System. Yeah. Yeah, negative system. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then they just started like, let's focus on the tactical part of the game. Sure. And now in the next World Cup, Ronaldinho didn't got called up because, you know, he wasn't the same Ronaldinho as he was before, but he was still that guy that if you gave him the ball, he could do something special. So then in 2010, we had Kaká, we had Robinho, and then a bunch of role players. Then Kaká got hurt. Who's going to play? Who's going to help Robinho out, sure. you know? So we didn't have that. We started. At that time, Neymar was already, like, getting... Um, some recognition in Brazil. We had another guy, uh, Paul Enrique Ganso, that was really good, and they didn't get called up because he preferred the role players. So I think that was the change that kind of so, hurt us as well. So this is interesting to me, right? Because I, I know we're going to talk about Iceland in coming episodes, right? But we're not going to talk about Iceland from 1992 because that wasn't Iceland. 
we're studying, right? We're going to talk about Iceland of recent and what they've done over the last, what is it, 15 years or so that has changed culturally for them. I think we can do a whole case study on Germany. What Germany's done since they missed out in 2000 from a Euro perspective has changed the trajectory of their players. Um, and we talk about Brazil, right? But talk about Brazil before they made some of those changes. Um, nobody has it right perfect all the time. But environmentally, I think... I, th- I think there's a lot to be learned from from unique cases and unique locations across the world. And we are just lucky enough to have Andy Barney, who has watched and read it all when it comes to that research. And I say that in jest, but gen- genuinely, there's, there's a few concepts, Ashington, England being an example, that we're going to do an entire episode on Ashington, England, and why it was phenomenal. Andy, if you want to share a few of those stats in terms of the numbers of players that they were putting out from one specific era. They didn't put out players before that era. They didn't put out players after that era. And Andy's done the research and we've, we've, we've looked at um, what made that era unique and special and why there are things from Ashton England that we, re- we should repeat as a soccer culture, but only from that era, not the era before the era after. Andy, do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, you know, Ashington, England is a, is an interesting example because, um, you know, just to give you a tidbit, because the details will come later, um, in Ashington, England, uh, they they had three PFW Players of the Year in 1962, 1966, and 1967. In 62, it was uh, a, a footballer called Jimmy Adamson who played for Burnley. In 66, it was Bobby Charlton, who with, you know, anybody that knows anything about the game, doesn't really need much of an introduction, but he was the central midfielder for England when England won the World Cup in 1966 and also the the Ballon d'Or winner that year. And and then in 67, it was his brother Jack, you know, who, a big goose of a guy, six foot three inches tall, doesn't look like a soccer player. You know, if if you have a picture of a really, you know, high-class soccer player in your mind, Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, know, he, he goes from this at his waist to this at his shoulders. Well, Jack went from this at his shoulders to this at his waist, you know, and <laughs> his shoulders were narrower <clears throat> than the waist. <laughs> Absolutely. Just a pigeon chest. You know, <clears throat> he wasn't particularly, you know, um, genetically gifted, but the environment in which he and Bobby and, and, uh, and Jimmy Adamson grew up in made them really, really top-class soccer players. So you've got these three players that won the PFW Player of the Year award, and here's what's absolutely freaky about this. They didn't just come from Ashington, which never, ever had more than about 29,000 people as a population. So it was a small town, small mining town. They came from one street in Ashington, Laburnum Terrace, and these three PFW Players of the Year in what was at the time the best league in the world, recognised as the best league in the world, you know, the English First Division, you know, all won that, that honour. And two of them won the World Cup with England, the two brothers, you know. And what I've discovered in delving into Ashington is um, the previous generation to the true brother, two brothers, Jack and Bobby, uh, there were five first division players in that generation before Jack and Bobby. So you had five players in the generation before Jack and Bobby, two World Cup winners in the generation afterwards, plus Jimmy Adamson. And all of these players plus more came from this tiny little town, you know, which, why? Why was this tiny little town able to produce all these great players? And the interesting thing is in Wikipedia, 
there's 71 famous people from Ashington. And of these 71 people, it's 54 are sports people, 44 are pro soccer players. There's nothing like it I can find anywhere in the world where that percentage of famous people play one sport, you know. And so was it something in the water? No, it was, and we'll get into this in more depth. It wasn't the youth academy. No, it wasn't coaching. <laughs> there, were, there was no coaching, yeah. you know. So, you know, it was just the culture and the environment. But, you know, in some type of a, um, you know, a magic wand deal from, from you know, some superior supernatural being what they waved their wand over ashington and so many environmental things came together to make this a hotbed of soccer and we'll get into that in more depth later but you know ashington is an incredible example of how you know the culture is vital but it, it's only going to really produce great players when the culture and the environment is hand in hand you know and solves a myriad of problems you know. Culture, environment, uh, 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 beginning with the end of mind, summit-focused um, uh, 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 organization, mission, structure, right? Leadership focus. It's some of those things that we as coaches have invested a lot of energy and time into creating for our players, um, and we're eager to have those chats. And, and if there's anything that, that, um, that we should share is that we are – really enthusiastic about this new platform and some of the information and the content that we're going to be putting out for you guys as an as an end user and we think it's unique it's different it's not it's not your typical hey what what uh uh what formation should you employ when working with 77 kids versus 99v9v kids uh you know how do you how do you organize out of the back moving forward this isn't going to be a podcast about that this is going to be a podcast about how you structure your environment how you employ uh, philosophy to curriculum that that creates a scenario that has created the best players in the world um, and and what we can learn from those cultures and how we can adapt it to our unique American culture so with that said um, uh, subscribe YouTube Instagram Twitter I'll get better at saying that as we go um, but thanks so much for listening thanks guys thank you thank you Andrew coaching inside the box a youth soccer coaching podcast a Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box?